Welcome to the second Corax and Coffee podcast. I'm your host, Pete Steele. And I'm your other host, Rick Hendricks. And Corax and Coffee is all about playing tabletop games, talking about top tabletop games, and really talking about how we can play these games in public to eliminate gamer stereotypes about just being nerds in the basements of their parents' house because gamers are diverse. We're a diverse group of people. And the board gaming community, the board gaming space, the number of board games that are available are immense and growing every week. And we like to say that if you are very least interested in board games, there is a board game and probably many board games out there that you will enjoy. Absolutely. So we're trying to bring some new people into the hobby. Yeah. And we just like to talk about board games, let's be honest. Yeah, that's fair. If you get something out of it, that's uh, more power to you. More power to you. In addition to uh, Rick and myself, we just want to give a shout out to the other people behind Corax and Coffee. Uh, Keegan King is our producer of the podcast, and he's also involved in Corax and Coffee in many other ways. Sarah Vasa is our editor. She does all things behind the scenes for us, including managing our social media. And Miss Shaw is a board game enthusiast, and she's kind of our go-to person for um, saying, hey... You like board games, but you're not a gamer per se. Does this make sense to you? Is this jargon and and whatnot? So it's nice to have kind of an enthusiast who's also a newbie to the board game scene on the team. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the major categories of tabletop games. The first category is board games. Then we have role-playing games. Then we have card games. And we have miniature games and war games. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about how those are different. Yeah, and very often tabletop games and board games are terms that are used interchangeably. And you can do that. Why not? You can say whatever you want, right? But the reality is that there is distinction. And we're going to talk about that a little bit without getting too much into the nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. But also you might be asking... Why? Why Why does this matter? Like, why board games, role-playing games, card games, miniatures games, who cares? Why make these distinctions at all? And we truly believe it's important to make these distinctions not just to split hairs, um, but because these are jargon terms and people who are in the hobby, gamers, might not realize that these are jargon, jargony terms, and many people outside the hobby are not going to understand the difference between a card game and a role-playing game or a board game and not understand that there is a need to make these distinctions at all. It's really important for gamers to realize that these terms are jargon, and if they really want to support their non-gamer friends getting into the hobby, they need to know that. And if they have a friend that they understand, hey, role-playing is just not their thing, They don't enjoy that type of narrative structure or they don't enjoy improvisation, but they do enjoy playing with decks of cards. Mm -hmm. Maybe a card game is the thing for them to introduce to their friend. Absolutely. And there is a big difference in feel. You know, it's almost like not discussing the fact that there are differences between uh, animated uh, movies and live action movies. Yeah. All the difference in the world. Some of those are not going to be somebody's cup of tea. And there's also a lot of overlap, right? Just because a board game, like a tabletop game is a board game, does not mean that there are no cards in it or that there's no narrative role-playing. There Mm -hmm. are tons of uh, elements of overlap in different tabletop game structures, and we're going to talk a little bit about that Oh, yeah, tons tons of arguments. We we had (laughs) some trouble... uh, figuring out where to put some of these things. As, as we were de- kind of developing the concept for this podcast, Rick, if you remember, you and I were having long-form discussions about what game goes where, and we did not always agree, and that's okay. Right. And there was even a point at which we stared at each other and said, Wait, what is what does make a difference between a board game and just a game that has a board? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember one conversation we had, we were talking about Cosmic Encounter, Mm -hmm. which is currently uh, being produced by Fantasy Flight Games. And Cosmic Encounter has tons of cards in it. So you could say it's a card-driven game. 
There's no physical board to speak of. There's no cardboard board, no neoprene board, no plastic board. There are kind of little circular cardboard discs for your little ships to go on. Sure. And you have these little ship miniatures, so it's not strictly cards. It's like, oh, is this a card-driven game? Is this a board game without a board? I mean, that conversation went on forever. Absolutely. And when we're talking about board games specifically, they tend to have a main board made out of cardboard, plastic, cloth, neoprene, what have you. And they tend to deal in a combination of different game components such as dice, cards, tokens, and or miniatures. But they don't have to. So a lot of the examples everybody thinks of are uh, chess, which has been with us since around 1475. Go, which has been here way longer. At least 3,000 years longer. At least 3,000 years longer, yeah. Uh, Monopoly, which is more modern. We're up to 1933 now. Uh, And Risk, which came out in 1959. These are all classic board games. Yeah, and these are all games that somebody are going to come into somebody's mind who's less familiar with the plethora of games that are out there now. They're going to think, oh yeah, chess, Monopoly, whatnot. Exactly. But it doesn't end there. It does not. I think there are other board games that have kind of become more ubiquitous in the last several decades. Settlers of Catan is certainly a board game where you kind of assemble the board with these little hexagons of cardboard. And so it's a little different every time. It's a little different every time, but there is a distinct board. And Settlers is kind of a gateway game. It has a reputation of being a gateway game of helping non-gamers get into the hobby a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has, Settlers of Catan has lots of cards, all of your resource cards. Settlers has many expansions that have additional cards. So it's definitely a card-driven game. Right. But definitely also a board game, not a card game. And in addition to fighting over cards, you're fighting over control of that board space. Very much an area control game. Mm-hmm. And then another board game, which definitely not as well-known as Settlers of Catan, but still pretty well-known, is Axis and Allies, which is a game that's been around, has had many editions, was first published in 1981. Uh, Larry Harris is the designer of that game, and it has tons of little miniatures on a main board that's kind of a 1942 World War II abstracted but not super abstracted simulation. Sure. And people could say, oh, this is a war game. This is a war game simulation. And to that, I would say, yes, it definitely has those elements. And if you want to say this is a war game or a simulation, go for it. Right. But I definitely think because it has a huge dice component and has all these miniatures, um, on this large cardboard board, it really fits more into the board game category, into a category that you know is often called dudes on a map. Yes. So that's kind of a very brief overview of board games. Yeah. And uh, next we have card games, which is start, of course starts with uh, playing card games. You know, these are the games that are played with your standard set of playing cards, ace, jack, king, queen, one through ten. Um, some good examples of this are Go Fish, Hearts, Bridge, Poker, Cribbage. The list goes on. The list goes on and on and on. <laughs> they they did a they made a lot of covered a lot of ground with uh, very simple tools because that's what you had. Right. But cards are not cards are not cards. And if I say, oh, let's play a card game, there's going to be a very different thing that comes to mind for a non-hobbyist gamer versus a hobbyist gamer versus, you know, for kind of a an average person will be like, oh, do you want to play hearts or poker? Right. Is that what you're talking about? Because they think of the standard 52-card deck of playing cards. When you say, do you want to play a card game to someone in the hobby, the sky's the limit. They're probably thinking magic. They're probably thinking magic, right? Magic the Gathering. Yeah. And Magic the Gathering was the first what's known as a customizable card game or kind of by more modern nomenclature, a trading or collectible card game mm-hmm. kind of in a, in a loving, but also derogatory fashion. It's known as cardboard crack because it's kind of, it can be addictive. 
Yeah, you buy more and more and more to give yourself more options. Right. Um, which is this kind of pay-to-win thing. Um, and paying to win is the more money you pump into the game, the more options you'll have, like you said, Rick, and the more powerful decks you can create. And the trading card community has tried to negate the pay-to-win model with limited success, but you can still invest 50 bucks in the game and have a good time. And, and those of us who haven't encountered Magic the Gathering may well have encountered, uh, when we were younger, uh, Pokemon, which came out in 1996, or Yu-Gi-Oh, which came in, out in 1999. Uh, and this is very much the same sort of thing, uh, but with a younger tar- target audience. And a lot of these people are grown up at this point and uh, maybe ready to get deeper into the hobby. And when Magic first came out in 93, mm-hmm. board game companies and also independent designers basically all had the same reaction. It was, oh my goodness, the industry is completely being turned on its head. And there is tremendous amounts of money in trading card games, customizable card games. Mm-hmm. And what you what you had in for the rest of the '90s and early 2000s was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, at least, of different trading card games being developed and published, and very few of them. And there are still trading card games that are being published; they are still being developed, but. Of those hundreds of games that were developed in the 90s and early 2000s, very few of them have actually survived the test of time. You know, Magic, Pokemon, and Yu-Gi-Oh! being three prime examples of games that did. And there are certainly others, um, but these are kind of the big giants. Well, and the, the big problem with this is if you're playing one of these games and you're, all your friends are playing a different one, your deck is essentially worthless. You're all on your own. And you're supposed to all have decks. And uh, if everybody else wants to play Yu-Gi-Oh! and you're still playing Pokemon, uh, you're going to have a bad time. Um, so that the the rush of competition really didn't do a lot of these games any favors. Right, exactly. It's, you know, you have the innovation and the competition, but it's also there was this bubble and and it really bursted for a lot of games. And that's tricky too, right? Because the one of the main draws for this type of game is that a publisher basically guarantees implicitly or explicitly that there's going to be an aggressive line of expansions. Right. And support for the game. Right. And a publisher can only do that so long as the game remains profitable. And th- and to do that, they need a bigger share of the market share. Right. Whereas any other game, you know, if I'm the only one of my friends who has Monopoly, okay, great, I can still have my friends over and play Monopoly. But the the, the industry, both on the developer side and the consumer side, have learned from the growing pains of customizable card games. Have and they've learned that when a new customizable or trading card game comes out, many would-be players are a little bit wary mm-hmm. of should I invest in this game or is the bubble going to burst and this just this game be discontinued and will be unsupported and I won't be able to play it for years and years and years so and my investment will become worthless right and that certainly that happened with other games as well like Android Netrunner and we'll talk about that game a little bit later sure I feel like we're being a little bit harsh towards customizable card games and they are great. They are they are little, tons of fun to play. They have huge, wonderful communities. And there's a reason that they are so popular and are able to, you know, make so much money. They're, there's a lot of good there. Oh yeah, I think I think Wizards of the Coast, who owns Magic the Gathering, I think they pull in like a third of a billion annually on the Magic IP alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The idea behind customizable card games or trading card games is that you buy packs of cards and the content that you get is randomized or semi-randomized. So it's always a surprise about what you get. Mm -hmm. A different model for card games is having an expandable card game or what Fantasy Flight has called a living card game for their line of this type of game where rather than having a pack of cards where the content is partially randomized in a surprise. It's when you buy an expansion for 
a living card game or an expandable card game, the content is fixed and it's all the same. So when you buy a pack, expansion number seven, in that box, it's always the same content. So if you and your friend John and your friend Sally all buy expansion number seven, you each have a copy of the same cards. So some examples of this would be Arkham Horror, the card game, the Game of Thrones card game, which has has multiple editions now, Android Netrunner, um, which is sadly no longer in print. But interestingly, the cool thing about Android Netrunner, which came out in 2012 and I think was discontinued in 2018 or 2019, approximately, by Fantasy Flight, is that it is the younger cousin of uh, the Netrunner, the original Netrunner card game, <laughs> which was... Yeah, which was a customizable card game like Magic the Gathering. It came out in 96, and it was actually designed by Richard Garfield, who designed Magic. Ah. Yeah. Android Netrunner took on this different model of being a living card game rather than a customizable card game. And it was an attempt to kind of save that failed customizable card game uh, and get it working in some form. And it did really well for a number of years. Nice. People loved Android Netrunner. Mm-hmm. So another one of these that we've been uh, that we've talked about before is Dominion, which actually isn't published by Fantasy Flight, but it's uh, by Rio Grande Games, uh, published in two thousand eight, and they're still coming out with expansions to this day. I think we said in our last podcast the next expansion, um, Allies, is coming out in December twenty twenty one, supposedly. <laughs> All righty, these are kind of kind of categories of card games where. The only component, really, that you need is the cards. Mm -hmm. But then you have almost an entirely another subcategory of card games, which are card-driven games, which may have components other than the cards, but the components are 90% cards or 80% cards. So like the Unlock series of games, which is basically a stack of cards, and it's basically an escape room in a box, and they're app-driven. But if people like escape rooms, try Unlock. One criticism, I think, has been, well, they don't have a lot of replay value because once you know the puzzle, you know the puzzle. Yeah, much like escape rooms. Much like escape rooms. <laughs> and Unlock games are way cheaper. It costs 15 bucks mm-hmm. and give you an hour of entertainment for you and your friends. Cheaper than a movie. Way cheaper than an escape room. Yeah. And then you can just pass them along. You just pass them along. Or leave them on your shelf for five years until you forget the puzzle and do it again. There you go. Yeah. There are tons of card-driven games, and we can't, couldn't possibly list them all. No one would listen to that. No. But I do want to mention Ohanami specifically because I think Ohanami is a great gateway game for people who like playing card games like Hearts or Cribbage um, or the like because it's just a deck of 120 cards with numbers on them. And the idea is, the theme is you're trying to build a Japanese... Zen Garden, huh. and the artwork is gorgeous, and you're really just doing strategic number matching and placement, but there's an actual incredible amount of deep strategy to it, because you're not just organizing cards by number, you're really playing against your opponents in this kind of drafting, hate-drafting arena. Interesting. And I would I would buy Ohanami for anybody as a just-because gift who thinks they might be interested in gaming at all. It's 15 bucks. It's sort of an easy way to get in. Very easy. You can teach it in five minutes. You can play it in 20. It can be two players, three. It can be, it's two to four player game. Once I bought my first copy of Ohanami and played it a couple times, the first thing I did is I ran out and I bought a second copy and just threw it in the glove box of my car so it would always be with me wherever I went. Nice. In case of emergencies. In case of emergencies. If that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. So another uh, card-driven game that I picked up uh, when it came out in 2017 is Fog of Love by Jacob Jaskoff. I'm sure I butchered that name. My apologies. He runs Hush Hush Projects. This is a romance-themed game. So you play it with one other person, and you sort of use the cards and have, have it lead you through to create your own uh, couple with your own problems. So it will decide what the major conflicts are going to be between you, and then you just sort of see how it goes. It has a number of expansions. It came out with Paranormal Romance in 2018. Uh, It Will Never Last in 2018. 
Trouble with the In-Laws in 2018. Trouble with the In-Laws, that's amazing. I have played that one. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then Lock on Lockdown, which is 2021. That must be a... Uh, I assume that's a COVID-based expansion, which is actually kind of cool. Yeah. And Fog of Love is just yet another example that board games are really unconstrained by theme. You can create a board game about around any theme you can think of. It's not all goblins and spaceships and goblins on spaceships. Mm-hmm. What's cool is that you could actually say to your significant other or somebody you're going out on a first date with to see if you're compatible. Be like, hey, you want to go have a board game date? And they might be into it or they might be hesitant. But either way, you could say you want to have a board game date and play a board game about dating. Mm -hmm. And then they'll just think you're punking them, but you're not. Yeah. It's also fun to me how Fog of Love brings in so much role playing and improv, which you don't usually see in a card game, but it kind of blurs the lines a little bit as you're definitely following what the cards tell you to do. But sometimes what the card tells you to do is convince this person to do what you want them to do. And if you do, you get a point. And it's, it's very interesting. Convince them to do what you want to do within the scope of the game. It's all consensual. Yeah, well, yes. Yes, but convince him to let your in-laws move in. And depending on how they built their character in the beginning, they might be really opposed to that. It's, a, it's an adventure of a type. Mm-hmm. I think one more game that I want to mention in this category is the game Paleo, which just came out in 2020. Mm-hmm. And Paleo is, again, a card-driven game. It's got some other cardboard tokens, but it's all about having your tribe of 50,000 years ago survive and create a cave painting. Okay. And it's got cool artwork. Again, it has a little bit of an issue with the replay value. I think there are seven or eight scenarios in it. Mm-hmm. If you can swing the 40 or 50 bucks of the game, you're going to have seven game nights with friends. I mean, that's a pretty good value for money. And then you can pass the game along. Yeah, it's pretty good. I do want to say, though, I do have an issue with a lack of diversity in Paleo in that it depicts all of the cave people. And it might all be cavemen. I'm not sure. I can't remember. But all the cave individuals as light-skinned individuals, which is a diversity issue in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But when you consider that 50,000 years ago, almost all Homo sapiens had darker skin, this game just really missed the mark, um, which is a shame. A little bit more research uh, and a little bit more uh, diversity would not have gone amiss. So do with that information what you will. If you can set that considerable issue aside, it is an interesting play. Mm. So the third category we want to talk about is miniatures games and war games. And what's tricky here is that do miniatures games and war games really go together or are they two really distinct categories? And I think the answer we came to, it really depends on who you ask. Yeah, this is very much like the LARP slash SCA divide. Yes. The SCA is the Society for Creative Anachronism. Yes. Really neat group, but... If you call them LARPers, some people who are in the SCA will say, oh, yeah, and other people will stab you with (laughs) weapons they've made themselves. Want to avoid that as much as possible. It it, it really depends who who you ask. So if we talk about them together, but also talk about initially what makes them distinct, that might be an appropriate middle ground, although I'm sure we're still going to anger some people, right? Well, we're trying not to. We're we're trying not to. Hopefully that counts for something. I'm going to say it does. We'll we'll see. We'll see. see. There you go. Okay. So (laughs) if we are going to make a distinction here, and again, there's a lot of overlap, miniatures games tend to have more of a focus on the model assembly and the painting of the models, right? Mm -hmm. So arts and crafts. Right. So unlike dudes on a map where you just sort of grab a bunch of miniatures like in Risk and you plop them on the board and you say, okay, great. There's a lot of art to this and a lot of uh, attention to detail before you even start playing. Right. And the the attention, the level of attention to detail is really up to you. It's like, it's a function of 
your inclination and your time and your wallet and your skill, your artistic skill. Because there's a huge community around just around painting miniatures. There are art competitions, painting competitions, um, independently of the games that these miniatures are designed to be a part of. I think there are even some people who just love painting and could care less for playing. Right. Uh, that community def absolutely exists. Um, and there is a community who loves the lore around the game and loves playing the game and will just put a kind of very slapdash coat of paint on the miniatures so they can get them to the table. And then there's everybody in between. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. War games, on the other hand, tend to have more of a focus on historical simulations or realistic combat mechanics and tend to be more abstracted. And what I mean by that is there are more war games that don't have miniatures per se, but will just use wooden cubes or will use cardboard tokens that have stats printed on them. Now, of course, there certainly are war games that use miniatures and just as much art and artistry can go into painting miniatures of certain war games as miniatures games. So there's tons of overlap here. Mm -hmm. Both miniatures games and war games, I feel, as opposed to having a game board, a printed game board made out of, again, cardboard or what have you, they tend to have a game table, which has painted terrain, which is artistry in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And measurements, distances between units tend to be measured by range finders or tape measures rather than individual spaces, for, like on a game board. They're a lot less gamified right. in that sense than, say, a board game. That's true. Where you're talking about, okay, this person is 20 meters away, which means I can shoot them with my whatever rifle, uh, as opposed to a board game where they're worried about how many spaces away someone might be. So let's drive this distinction between miniatures games and war games home. Mm -hmm. what, what miniatures games you got for us, Rick? Well, the current industry leaders for uh, miniature games are Warhammer 40K by Games Workshop, it's been out since 1987. Uh, and their new Age of Sigmar, also by Games Workshop, that came out in 2015. So if you've heard of Space Marines or more DACA orcs, that's Warhammer 40K. Yep. There's a lot of spaceships, psychic powers, chaos weirdness that... Chaos weirdness? So that could be anything. <laughs> yes, but it dips into sort of... Uh, Cthulhu-esque corruption. You touch this stuff and you're never the same. Right. As I understand it, Age of Sigmar explores a lot of those same themes. Um, so if you hate those themes, it's probably not the place for you. But Age of Sigmar is set more in a magic setting on a single world as opposed to traveling across the stars in a rusty hunk of a chunk you assembled using psych psionic uh, magic. Right. And I have to admit that I love the Warhammer universe and lore, and I really appreciate people who have the skills and ability and patience to paint all these mingers. I mean, I subscribe to half a dozen, if not more, painting channels on YouTube and will tune in at least every other week to watch updates and whatnot. And I'm a huge fan of that. Mm -hmm. And over the past 30 years, I have probably collected 30 or 40 Warhammer books, which I've read almost cover to cover, and I've watched people play Warhammer games, and I have tried, and this is my point, I have tried to get into the model building and painting probably three or four times over the course of my life, and I just don't have the patience. I want to play the game. So the artistry is, I appreciate it, I like listening and watching about it, but I just don't, can't do it. I mean, I have no artistic ability, Rick. If, if I were to draw a stick figure, you'd be like, hey, like, nice pizza yeah yeah well it's not in everybody's blood it's not in everybody's blood however even if the model assembly and painting is not for you but you still love the idea of running around with miniatures on a map fear not because mm -hmm. there are plenty of options that are still available for you absolutely for example um star wars armada by fantasy flight came out in 2015 if you are a star wars fan or a spaceship fan and can deal with the star wars setting um their uh, star wars armada is all about flying around armadas fleets of ships on a map and these models become fully assembled fully and beautifully painted 
So that's one option. Mm -hmm. If you prefer smaller scale combat, so like a starfighter dogfight, rather than large fleet engagements, there's Star Wars X-Wing, again, also by Fantasy Flight. Um, they have two editions, first and second, um, which came out in 2012 and 2018, respectively. And if you like Star Wars and you like um, miniatures... Like like ground combat is what you're talking about. You like ground, ground combat. You have Star Wars Legion. Now, Star Wars Legion, you do have to paint the miniatures on your own, um, which for someone like me is a shame, but some people love it. And it allows more customization. It does. It which which makes sense. Does. You you yeah. might not care so much what your uh, what your star destroyer looks like, but you might very much want to change the color of your uh, of your character shirt. And there are plenty of miniatures games that come with miniatures in some level of painted detail and assembly. Other like outside the Star Wars universe, mm -hmm. um, we just can't list them all right here, but they exist. In terms of war game examples, um, some classic war games are Advanced Squad Leader, mm -hmm. which first came out in, oh goodness, I think like 1985. So it's been around for a while. By, uh, it was developed by Don Greenwood, published by Avalon Hill. And Advanced Squad Leader, I mean, it has at least 10 expansions that have come out over the years. And it uses cardboard tokens rather than miniatures. Cardboard tokens and a hex grid. Okay. So it is much more of a uh, abstracted war game simulation. What's the uh, setting for that? Or is it setting agnostic? Oh, you know what? Embarrassingly, I'm not sure. I want to say it's the Second World War, but if I'm wrong, I'm going to get some hate for that, which I deserve. Sorry for putting you on the spot. That's fine. <laughs> um, there's also Combat Commander, and Combat Commander was developed by Chad Jensen and published by GMT Games, and again, it has over 10 expansions. And I can tell you that there are many different settings for Combat Commander. Europe, and again, this is a World War II game, mm -hmm. the Pacific, and so on and so forth. This also uses cardboard tokens rather than miniatures. Gotcha. And then kind of between... Something like Warhammer 40k and Combat Commander, but definitely falls in the war game category or subcategory, is Battlecry, which came out in 1999. Mm -hmm. It's all about the American Civil War, developed by Richard Borg, um, published by Avalon Hill. And it does have miniatures that you can assemble and paint, but it doesn't nearly have the extensive nature of Warhammer 40k and it's not nearly as abstracted as Combat Commander or Advanced Squad Leader but the great thing about Battlecry is that it has a number of scenarios that are designed to simulate historical battles of the American Civil War. Nice. There's really something for everyone depending on their tastes. Absolutely. There's uh, no shortage of, of different themes and settings right. uh, to play around in. So our last major category of games that we're going to cover today is role-playing games. It's a major category, Rick. Yeah, it's a major category. The sort of or example of role-playing games that everybody thinks about is Dungeons & Dragons by Wizards of the Coast. It came out originally in 1974, and it's got five editions as, as of yet. It depends on how you count. You know, if you can say it has five or you can say it has seven and a half, I think. Right. And it depends how you want to count the Pathfinder. Right. And yeah. yeah. And and actually they're coming out with, uh, there was just a, a announcement probably a month or two ago in late summer, early fall of 2021 that Dungeons and Dragons 5.5 is going to come out in the next year or so. And there's another set of books I have to buy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. I uh, wonder if I'll actually get to play a game. <laughs> you know you'll buy the books either way. Oh, I definitely will. Definitely. I will too. I'll have them on pre-order when they're available. <laughs> there you go. Uh, however, Dungeons & Dragons is far from the only role-playing game out there. Whereas Dungeons & Dragons uses a what they call a D20 system, which is primarily based around a 20-sided die that you roll to see how well you do or not. Uh, there's also a more narrative game known as Fate uh, 
This was published by Evil Hat Productions in 2003. And Fate is an interesting game. It's more of a system for creating your own game. So it has you can do superheroes in Fate. You can do horror in Fate. You can do anything you can imagine. Fate will has you covered. But there are not as many numbers in it. Instead, you have attributes. So, for example, if you are the party rogue, you might have a attribute that says everything opens. Okay. So anytime you wanted to get in somewhere or you could argue it for other things, you know, you could argue it for talking your way into a store. You could argue it for all sorts of things. You would apply everything opens against that difficulty and see how well you did. I see. Okay. It's one I haven't tried. Yeah. But it sounds interesting. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind is Shadowrun. Currently owned by Catalyst Game Labs, but it was originally published by FASA Incorporated in 1989. And Shadowrun is set in a dystopian future where corporations have taken over everything. And both magic and technological implants are pretty common. So it's really it's really a kind of fantastical cyberpunk universe. Exactly. Right. And Shadowrun is actually really, really popular it's got tons of support Mm -hmm. absolutely and it's got a nice dichotomy between the magic and the technology the more technology you use especially grafted into your body the more of your soul you'll lose so you can't do as much of the magic so there's a lot of lore exactly but it's also sort of a, a hybrid with the modern world so you can sneak a lot of real world history there in there if you like gotcha There have been Star Trek role-playing games that have come out over the years. Some were better than others. There have been Star Wars role-playing games that have come out over the years, some better than others. I personally just find the history of the development of Star Wars role-playing games fascinating in that there have been three major Star Wars role-playing game systems over the past 30 years that have been owned by three different companies. <laughs> West End Games uh, developed the Star Wars role-playing game in 1987, and then they had a second edition in 92, and a second revised and expanded edition in 96, and then Wizards of the Coast developed a Star Wars-themed role-playing game based on their D20 system, and they released editions in 2000, 2002, and 2007 with streamlined rules. And then Fantasy Flight, and that that Wizards of the Coast edition is currently out of print, as is West End Games' editions. Gotcha. Fantasy Flight has their own current Star Wars role-playing game, which is supported. But it's just really fascinating to me that there have been different companies that have owned this IP in different ways and kind of gone their own way with it. It's a very popular it's IP, very popular. and uh, there's a lot to work with. I do want to say, many people mm-hmm. think it is so difficult to get into role-playing games. And I think it's important to mention two ways that you can be involved in role-playing games without investing hundreds of hours. Three ways. One is that you can just attend one scenario of a campaign. It's one evening, and that's it. You can have an evening of fun, experience a role-playing game, and be done. No harm, no foul, right? They seem to be decently fun to watch, yeah. Yeah. Another way is that there are these things called micro RPGs, and Corex and Coffee is actually developing a few of those that we're going to have in our on our website in short order, mm-hmm. which are designed to be able to. It's they're like two to three pages. You can just print them out, read them with your friends in five or ten minutes, and then have an hour or two hours of fun, and that's it. Well, and if we're uh, if we get our act together here, we should have a few of those available for free on our website. We will, yeah. May or may not be open up yet, but give it a check. In the near future, yeah, we will have those. And we'll have an announcement about that when they go up. I do think mm-hmm. one other thing worth pointing out about role-playing games is that I have more role-playing game books from different campaign worlds on my bookshelf than I will ever be able to actually play in my lifetime, given everything else I have to do. Sure. And that's okay, because I will spend time curled up with one of these role-playing books, just reading the lore, reading the game mechanics. And if you have a universe 
if you're a fan of a particular universe or particular genre, be it cyberpunk or be it Star Trek or Star Wars or fantasy, you can just go and grab one of these books and kind of read you can read it cover to cover, or you can read it as a reference manual and pick and choose where you start reading and where you stop and be involved in the universe mm -hmm. without ever having to play. Absorbing that lore can be a lot of fun sometimes. It really is. All right. Are there any other uh, role-playing games specifically that you want to mention before we move on here? There is one. I okay. This one I actually haven't played, but I've experienced it in podcast form, and it just seems like so much fun. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, so the one I'm talking about is Monsters and Other Childish Things by Arc Dream Publishing in 2008. I've heard of it. I have not played it. And I say I haven't actually experienced it directly. I have read the book and I've, read, <laughs> I've uh, gone through that. But anyway, the basic idea of Monsters and Other Childish Things is it's you're all children and each of you has an imaginary friend. Okay. Your imaginary friend is some sort of crazy monster from beyond the veil. Because of course they are. <laughs> because of course they are. So much like the fate system that I mentioned earlier, it's very narrative. And your monster will have abilities like snuffling nose. And your snuffling nose can is good at finding certain things. So it can detect magical energies or it can detect... Uh, animals running around or whatever. Um, so it's it's a lot of fun going back into childhood and having this place where you sort of behave yourself around the adults and you pretend nothing's going on. And then when the adults are gone, the monsters come out. This and all sorts of crazy things happen. This is reminding me of that childhood book, Where the Wild Things Are, mm -hmm. by, I can't remember the author's name, unfortunately. but that Likely an inspiration, yeah. Likely an inspiration, yeah. So again, if you're not uh, if you're not looking to be a medieval wizard or a Star Wars person, this this is another group of, of fertile ground you could maybe explore. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, all right. It occurs to me we didn't actually talk about what role playing games are. That's a good point. All right, let's talk. So, role playing games. Are, are are defined by role playing. Good job. That's that's where you have. <laughs> you can't use the term in the definition, Rick. <laughs> yes, I can. I have a podcast now. Okay. Uh, so. Um, so when you say role playing, what do you mean? So I mean that you're inhabiting a character, and that character gets a spot at the table. So there are things that you just won't do, even though they're strategically beneficial because that's not what your character would do. You know, if you have the thief, he's not going to leave that gold alone, even though he knows it's probably trouble to go steal that gold. <laughs> that's the character I always play. Usually I throw a little magic in mine, but I, I often uh, I often have stickier fingers. Fair enough. Um, but there's also this, this sense of your character is a person outside of you and outside of the game and you know is concerned about their family is concerned about their friends the other thing that i find a lot in role-playing games is that the players are given disruptive options generally in board games you have three or four options you can take and they're all expected in role-playing games you're much more likely to be able to go down to the corner store and buy some dynamite and put it under the carriage and see what happens Right. And meanwhile, of course, the person who's trying to keep the story running is probably cursing at you, but it's an option. And that sort of wide open space uh, gives you more room to play in. And role playing games and, you know, Dungeons and Dragons in particular got a bad rap in the late 70s, early 80s. One, because there were a couple of groups of college kids who spent all of their time playing D&D &D and kind of flunked out of school. And there was a lot of media, bad press saying, oh, this is incredibly addictive and it's just ruining kids' lives. Like, well, no, not really. That's those kids made bad decisions. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple of other incidents, one in particular, where a kid who loved role-playing went missing and it got tons of media coverage and parents were saying, oh, this is satanic. Mm -hmm. and whatnot. It's like, well, 
you know what, I'm certainly not going to insult or make fun of anybody's faith system, belief system, or creed. Like, if, you know, wizards and magic is not for you, fine. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of other options, right? Absolutely. But I mention this because it's kind of almost a joke in the in board gaming community now, and especially the role-playing game community, because it got such a bad rap and it has come to light that these are just the exceptions rather than rules. Right. If you are playing a game in good fun and realize that it's simply a game and a way to have fun with your friends and are able to moderate your time, mm -hmm. that's fine. I think also many people think about role-playing games and they're like, oh, there are geeks who are just trying to escape their lives. And to them I would say, well, I can't speak for all people and there are certainly there's certainly an appeal to mm -hmm. escaping your own life time and again, right? But also, hey, anybody who has ever been in a school play or community theater or played cops and robbers or gotten down on the floor with a five-year-old and pretended they were a dinosaur has role-played. Exactly. This is something we all used to do and society told you at some point to stop. Right. All right, that's the end of my soapbox. You can also learn things from role-playing games that uh, might surprise you and might have real, uh, real-world applications. Um, learning how to be convincing around a table translates very well to the real world. Sure does. Um, I, when I'm not doing Corex and coffee things, am a locksmith. It only occurred to me to be a locksmith, to to look at that path at all, because I enjoyed role-playing rogues. There's got to be a memoir there for you somewhere. I'm sure there is. But, uh, but yeah, you can take a lot away from these things and uh, contribute to your real life. And it doesn't have to be a complete escape. On another note... As I've said, you can use as much or as little math as you like. There are certainly games. That's absolutely true. There are certainly games out there that are now departing from the roll a die at a number sort of system. So if the math is a sticking point for you, there are other other ways to go. There sure are. There's a game out there for everybody in each of these categories, mm -hmm. almost. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about where some of these games overlap, right? We've talked about board games and card games and miniatures and war games and role-playing games and you know we're putting these in these distinct categories and we've said that there is overlap so it's sometimes hard to to tell where something belongs yeah definitively tell where a game belongs right if you have to put it in one category and with this overlap i just want to make a note of a couple of games where it's really harder to tell so for example memoir 44 came out in 2004 by richard borg published by Days of Wonder. Um, it has, oh my goodness, it has probably 20 expansions, which is a World War II dudes on a map game. Mm -hmm. um, but is it a miniatures game? Is it a war game? Is it a board game? I would argue that this fits best in the board game category. Interesting. It has miniatures, it has a board, it has cards that you play. But, you know, there could be someone who disagrees with me and said, no, this is really a war game. And I'm like, you know what? You're not wrong. Yep. And then Cosmic Encounter, which I've already mentioned. Is this a board game or a card-driven game? Is Black Rose Wars a miniatures game or is it a war game or is it a card-driven game? Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense because there's, uh, there's a lot to be gained from stealing outside of your genre. Uh, from taking an idea that works really well over in role-playing and seeing if you can adapt it to a card game or a board game or what have you. Right. So how much does this even matter, all this categorization, Rick? Why are we doing this? Well, again, we're, we're trying to come up with simple categorical terms to communicate an idea shorthand. We need to be able to talk about a board game and know what each other means. Uh, otherwise, we just have this conversation every time before we get to what we actually want to talk about. Or what we actually want to play. Or what we actually want to play, exactly. If if I want to talk to you about a game and I say, hey, it's a board game, you can now make a decision about whether you want to play it with me or not. If I have to des describe to you every bit of it, we're going to be a horror all day. Right. 
We sure are. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of overlap. A lot of board games or role playing games. People will paint their miniatures like you might in a role in a in a war game or in a miniatures game, and that's perfectly fine. But there's also enough. There's a lot of overlap, but also enough distinction where an experienced gamer can look at a group of people from across a game store and know almost immediately, almost flawlessly, oh, if they're role playing or war gaming or board gaming or card gaming. Exactly, and it's an important thing to to try and bring somebody in. If you're if you've got somebody who is part of the improv team, you might want to think about bringing them into a role playing game. They might really thrive there. Right. If you've got somebody who hates public speaking with a burning passion and really doesn't want to draw attention to themselves ever, a role-playing game might not be the place to start. But a card game could be. But a card game could be, because a card game is very safe in that sense. Right. Exactly. But the, the point is, even very simple terms like board game, role-playing game, card game, miniatures and war games, these are jargon. They are. These are terms that not everybody knows, that you and I know because we've been in the hobby for a long time. And most people in the hobby know these terms. These are very basic to hobbyists. Exactly. But that means it's likely that you're going to try and use them outside of the hobby. Without even realizing it. Exactly. Right. And then be confused when somebody stares at you blankly. Exactly. Or calls something a board game that's clearly not a board game. Let's try and meet people where they are. That's right. All right. So that's pretty much going to wrap it up for us for this episode. I want to thank all of our listeners uh, for either listening for the first time or coming back after our introductory episode. And we will be back next week with another podcast. Exactly. So thank you again. Thank you again for listening to us here at Corax and Coffee. I'm your host, Pete Steele. And I'm your other host, Rick Hendricks. Uh, please like and subscribe. Uh, please do wis- visit our website at www.corexandcoffee.com and consider supporting us on Patreon or through our merch store. Take care, all. Take care. Oh, hey, didn't see you there. Because this is a podcast, obviously. Thank you for listening to the Corax and Coffee podcast with your dauntless hosts, Pete Steele and Rick Hendricks. Music, audio production, and occasional commentary, as well as this outro, by Keegan King. If you like this podcast, you may like our other podcasts, our game unboxing videos, written game reviews, and print and play game content as well, all available at CoraxandCoffee.com. Please also consider following us on social media, signing up for our newsletter for early and behind-the-scenes content, visiting our merch store, and becoming a Patreon supporter in whatever amount you think our content is worth. The quote of the week, luck's a revolving door. You just need to know when it's your time to walk through. Corax and Coffee, tabletop gaming, caffeinated.